You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support, the new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. For many millennia, humans have been on a journey to find answers to questions about who we are and why we are and, of course, who else might be out there. The sky may be softly humming with messages from the stars, with signals from civilizations enormously older and wiser than we. It's just so exciting, the concept that we have on Earth right now, the technology, fully capable of receiving a signal from another civilization. It's a natural, even a logical question that thinking creatures will pose once they turn their attention to the sky. Who's out there? Could there be life, intelligent life, beyond our planet? Are we alone in the universe? The question has been asked for millennia, but only in the last 50 years has it been addressed by science, when the first modern SETI experiment began. Since then, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, has captured the imagination of both scientists and the public. For some, SETI is weighted with near-theological gravitas. For others, to assume we are alone in this vast cosmos is a statement of self-importance. And, of course, popular culture has provided a creative assortment of what the aliens might look like. Oh, and the possibly interesting claim that they're already here. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Usually on Are We Alone, we look at the science that surrounds the search for extraterrestrial life, the biology, geology, physics, and technology of life on this planet. But in today's program, we take on the question, are we alone, itself. I mean, why, despite having made no contact since SETI began, researchers are still convinced that, in fact, we are not alone. Okay, first let's address what's on everyone's cerebellum when we talk about aliens. What would the aliens look like? In popular imagination, aliens come in a generous selection of shapes and sizes. Sometimes, indeed most times, they're bipedal with bulbous heads. Occasionally, they're six-legged insects or metal monsters with lasers for eyes. They've been known to be worm-like, living in sandy deserts, and in nearly all cases, they're outfitted with gnashing teeth. They love to drool and wield advanced weaponry. We are the Borg. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. A lot of people think that there's an alien presence on our own planet. Although, frankly, I'm skeptical we're being visited. If we were, I think every episode of Are We Alone would be dealing with aliens, and you'd find the evidence of their presence stacked up in your local university museum. But as for what they look like out there... There's so many possibilities that there's nothing that stands out as what might be a extraterrestrial. I, Frank I Drake is the founder that, of SETI. That is that we should recognize that we are not optimal. We always think we are the height, the po- best possible product of evolution. But Frank uh, makes well, the essential point. Why do we assume that the aliens will be human-like? I mean, that's just anthropomorphizing. So we'd be much better off if we had four arms rather than two. Although, sure, there are some advantages to the human form and, and to DNA, for that matter, but they're hardly going to be the only biological games in town. Uh, the ways we are defective or where evolution hasn't really done a great job are that we only have two arms, not more, and also that our mouth is 
not adjacent to our stomach. And so we have this complicated esophagus arrangement. I think a lot of extraterrestrials will have their mouth in their belly, <laughs> and uh, they'll have to talk through their nose, but evolution can take care of that. Okay, but the bigger question, why do we think these creatures are out there in the first place? It's not a new idea, as we've said. The first really thoughtful paper ever published on SETI was published in Nature magazine in 1959 by Philip, Philip Morrison, Morrison and Giuseppe, Giuseppe Cocconi, published a landmark paper in the journal Nature on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI. In it, they said that it was really not very hard to communicate between the stars using radio waves. That uh, searching for radio signals from other civilizations made sense, that they could well be there and allow us to find the existence of civilizations like our own in space. So they suggested that someone ought to listen for alien signals. But in 1959, no one did. That was left to Frank Drake a half year later in April 1960 when he conducted the first modern SETI experiment, which he called Project Ozma. And so Project Ozma consisted of building a one-channel radio receiver using these very sensitive new receivers, putting it on the telescope, which was... He did that experiment in Greenbank, West Virginia, using an existing radio telescope and pointing it at two stars, one after the other, in order to eavesdrop on any signals that might be coming from civilizations on planets around those stars. Those were the two stars, Tauceti and Epsilon Eridni, 10 light years from Earth. And we could have detected reasonable radio signals from those civilizations if they were beamed in our direction. He didn't really find any alien signals, although he did hear some military aircraft. But the word of Drake's experiment quickly spread, and other scientists were intrigued. This is Paul Horowitz, professor of physics and of electrical engineering at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Paul is a guy who knows a lot about electronics. In fact, he's literally written the book on electronics. So Paul comes to Harvard in the 1960s. And there's this guy by the name of Ed Purcell. Ed Purcell, by the way, shared the Nobel Prize for the invention of nuclear magnetic resonance. And he had given a wonderful talk about radio astronomy and communication through space, in which he talked about how radio astronomers can learn all kinds of things about the galaxy with radio antennas. And this just really excited me. Here's a Nobel Prize winner who says, this can work and it's a cool thing to do. And then the next year, there's a conference, the first professional conference on SETI in Green Bank, once again. A small group of scientists showed up to talk about this idea. Uh, there were about a dozen. Twelve of them. Okay, so the room wasn't packed, but this was an important conference. It was missing just one thing. We need an agenda. We need some kind of guideline as to what we're going to talk about. And it occurred to me, well, what do you need to know about to predict how much intelligent life there is out there to detect? And I realized that you could quantify our development of life and intelligent life on Earth. That's when Frank came up with a little formula. Do you have it memorized? Yeah, the, <laughs> the Drake equation. <laughs> the Drake equation is, gives you n, the number of detectable civilizations in our galaxy, and is the product of r star, which is the rate of star formation in our galaxy, multiplied by the fraction of those stars which have planetary systems, multiplied by the number of habitable planets in each system, multiplied by the fraction of those which give rise to life, multiplied by the fraction of systems of living things which evolve intelligence, multiplied by the fraction of those which develop a detectable technology, and then finally all of that multiplied by the length of time that technology is used in a way which it releases evidence of the existence of that civilization which we can detect. The Drake Equation. And this simple handy-dandy little formula put a handle on all the factors that have to do with alien life. Sure, it doesn't really tell us how many of them are out there because there are too many of the factors in the Drake equation that we don't know. But keep in mind two things. To begin with, the numbers are huge. There are literally hundreds of billions of star systems in every galaxy, and that's a lot of real estate. And secondly, the chemistry and the physics of the universe are the same throughout. What happened here could happen there. Right. But Frank was the first to come up with all of this. He began SETI. And anyone in science who's been a first has usually had the passion a long time. Everything starts in childhood. I was 10 when I built my first telescope. I was writing skits and stories when I was nine. My father told me when I was eight years old, there were other planets like the Earth. And to an eight-year-old kid, my imagination caused me to think that, oh, these places would be just like Earth and that there would be people there just like us and they would actually speak the language. That's what an eight-year-old kid thinks, and I just wanted to know if that was true. By the time I got to 12, I was 
what you would call a tinkerer. I like to build things. And one of the things I built was a radio transmitter from a little old Tesla coil, which came out of a Model A Ford. I built a small crystal set radio receivers, things like that. And in that way, I became interested in radio as a technology. And he went to work on much bigger radios, the radio telescope at Arecibo, Puerto Rico, for instance. There, amid the lush vegetation and the bumpy limestone hills, sits a radio telescope that can be used to find incredibly weak signals coming from the cosmos. And this telescope is big. How big, Seth? Well, a 1,000 feet in diameter. That's 18 acres, 10 football fields. And Frank was the director of the observatory for a while. In fact, while he was in Puerto Rico, he used that instrument for SETI, pointing it at various objects in the hope of successfully eavesdropping on ET by looking for the type of signal, type of radio transmission that only a transmitter could make. Where did the acronym SETI come from, and and who first used Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence? Now that acronym is used to define the whole field. The acronym SETI first appeared among the few of us who were active in this area in the early 1960s. We needed something to call it for short, and we called it SETI, except it was spelled with a C, not an S. And what we were talking about at that time was communication with extraterrestrial intelligence, hence SETI with a C. Now, after a few years, a few people who are very picky about the meanings of words, the semanticists, decided, well, we're not really trying to communicate with them, we're searching for them. And so we changed it to SETI with a S, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. By this time, interest in SETI was widespread, among the public, of course, but also among young astronomers. And it turns out that one of those who was at Harvard would one day become a household name. When I was a graduate student, one of my uh, roommates was taking a course by a young junior faculty upstart by the name of Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was doing planetary science. He soon met Frank Drake. Carl Sagan, as a very young man, was like me. He, he was just fascinated with the idea of extraterrestrial life. And in particular, he became fascinated with extraterrestrial life because in Russia, a very brilliant physicist named Josef Shklovsky had all the same thoughts about extraterrestrial life that we had had here in the United States and had written a very good book on the whole subject. And Carl read this book and was fascinated by it and thought this book should be published in the United States. And so he actually took the book and added his own inputs to all the chapters and it was published again here in the United States. And Sagan was basically teaching the book that he wrote with Shklovsky about intelligent life in the universe. In the course of doing this, of course, he became fascinated in the subject. Someday, perhaps soon, a message from the depths of space may arrive on our small world. If we wish to understand it, we first have to understand science. Over the course of their friendship and collaboration, Carl Sagan and Frank Drake had a few non-SETI adventures. One of the most interesting that's never been talked about was a time when we had been at a meeting in Washington and were leaving from Dulles Airport. Well, we noticed when we got on the plane there was a great deal of fuss at the gate for this flight because one of the people who came on board as a passenger in the first-class cabin just in front of us was none other than Alan Dulles, who was the director of the CIA and... We thought that was very interesting, so we sort of watched him. He had his briefcase with him, and he was reading papers, and we were thinking, oh, he's reading all the most important secrets and problems of the world at large. And when it came time to leave, uh, everybody got up to leave the flight, and as we walked through, we saw none other than Alan Dulles down on the floor, crawling around on the floor, looking for something. And... Finally, we got up our nerve to say, Mr. Dulles, can we help you? And he said, he said lost my damn briefcase. <laughs> and we're thinking, oh, my goodness, this briefcase with all the secrets of the United States is somewhere in this airplane, and anybody could have taken it off. So we helped him, and we found his briefcase and gave it to him, and he said, thank you, young man, and got off. 
it's possible that you protected the country. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we have no idea what secrets we kept from falling into uh, improper hands. Did you almost say alien hands? I almost said alien hands, yes. But we save the word alien for other things. <laughs> and discussions about alien intelligence, extraterrestrial intelligence, that is, is what drew Carl Sagan and Frank Drake together for more than 30 years. Carl brought to the endeavor a great deal of insights about what the nature of intelligent life might be, what the biological requirements were. He, in a way, served as a source of wisdom and a person who could referee crazy ideas and good ideas and, and give some guidance as to which things made sense and which didn't. He also had enormous popular appeal to the public. It wasn't just the scientists. That's unusual for a scientist, I think. It's very unusual, but he was one of his greatest talents, was reaching out to the public in a way which was exciting and scientifically correct and understandable. There are, in fact, a hundred billion other galaxies, each of which contains something like a hundred billion stars. Think of how many stars and planets and kinds of life there may be in this vast and awesome universe. Of course, later in his life, he became an international spokesman and educator who probably in his life had more impact on young people particularly and encourage them to careers in science than anybody else ever has. I think he would have turned 75 this year. It would have been his 75th birthday a few days ago. We embarked on our journey to the stars with a question first framed in the childhood of our species and in each generation asked anew with undiminished wonder, what are the stars? Hang on for more of our tantalizing tale of SETI. You're listening to Are We Alone? From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Are We Alone? Our show often looks at the science underpinning SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and delves into how scientists are trying to understand the workings of life and technology on this planet. But today's program looks at SETI directly and why scientists believe, in fact, we are not alone in the universe. Now, our story so far has been about early SETI endeavors. Right. In 1960, Frank Drake does the first modern SETI search, and for 10 years, radio astronomers occasionally swing their antennas in the direction of nearby stars when they run out of galaxies or quasars or whatever, hoping to find E.T. It's a part-time experiment. Now, let's move ahead to the years of gas shortages and... Disco. It was the early 70s when John Billingham began what he called the Interstellar Communication Committee. Wait, what was that? The Interstellar Communication Committee. Right. That was the early name for what became the NASA SETI project. See, at this point, Molly, there were still no organized SETI searches going on, just the sort of informal get-and-grab observations made by radio astronomers with a few hours of radio telescope time on their hands. It wasn't organized. Then... Enter John Billingham, a British physician working at NASA who figured it was time to do the experiment right. He organized a summer study about SETI, which resulted in a grand plan to build large antennas that could be dedicated to the search. That plan was called Project Cyclops. Cyclops was never built, but the study became the Bible for all subsequent SETI endeavors. But they needed to figure out what sorts of radio receivers they'd need, where to aim the antennas, and in general turned SETI from a part-time hobby into a full-time profession. And so they called a young astronomer named Jill Tarter. I actually called them and said, if there's something I can do to help you, I'd really like to. So I volunteered for SETI. 
Jill Tarter is now probably the single person most often associated with SETI in the mind of the public. She's conducted dozens of SETI searches and is director for SETI research at the SETI Institute. But back then, she got involved with Billingham's NASA project. And what I was able to contribute early on was to say, okay, what does the universe look like at the kinds of very narrow frequency resolution that was being proposed by Cyclops? So we actually did some studies to find the narrowest feature that the universe produced. She was brought in because she knew something about the sorts of radio signals that are made by nature, not by intelligent beings. Why is that important? Well, scientists want to catalog the range of natural signals, you know, radio noise made by things like pulsars and quasars and hot gas and cold gas and whatever, so that they could sort the wheat from the chaff. They would know what kinds of signals could only be explained as due to alien transmitters. So that work continued for a while. It was all being done at NASA. But maybe there was a more efficient way to organize the effort. Rather than continue to pay a NASA center high overhead rates for office space and management, maybe a better idea would be to create a separate nonprofit organization. I'm Tom Pearson, the CEO of the SETI Institute. So the SETI Institute, where I work now, was born. We exist to understand the nature, prevalence, and distribution of life in the universe. Suddenly there was a real institutional home for this kind of research. And so our mission really, to me, means answering fundamental, exciting exploration questions. And that is, where did life come from? And does it exist elsewhere? The study of life in the universe has become a very prime subject in the scientific world. It even has a name now. It's called astrobiology. Frank Drake was the SETI Institute's first president. He's now director of the Carl Sagan Center for the Study of Life in the Universe at the Institute. It works on research concerning everything about the origins of life, the distribution of life, and the detection of extraterrestrial life. So it includes studies of the chemical origins of life, Uh, the processes of evolution, what planets are habitable. It looks for other planetary systems who will know where to search for life. We have scientists working essentially pole to pole here on planet Earth, from the South Pole to the North Pole at any given time, uh, looking at life in a variety of extreme environments and trying to understand how life exists in those particular settings. And that that is uh, very important to informing future science payloads for NASA missions that might go to places like, for instance, Jupiter's moon Europa, where we now pretty clearly understand that under its frozen surface, there's more liquid water than there is water in all of the oceans of Earth. Now here's something that I've always wondered. When Carl Sagan wrote the book Contact about SETI, later made into a movie starring Jodie Foster, was Jill Tarter the model for that heroine? There's a broad misconception that the character Ellie Arroway in Carl Sagan's book Contact was modeled on Jill Tarter. But in fact, Carl Sagan said repeatedly this was not the case, that Ellie Arroway was based on an amalgamation of many people he knew who were participating in SETI, of which she was one. Yeah, there are 400 billion stars out there, just in our galaxy alone. If only one out of a million of those had planets, all right? And if just one out of a million of those had life, and if just one out of a million of those had intelligent life, there would be literally millions of civilizations out there. Now, Jill did have a lot of influence on the movie Contact, and in the book, too in that the producers of Contact actually sent their actors, including Jodie Foster, to Arecibo to watch the SETI group in action actually observing. And so they observed Jill Tarter, and Jodie Foster was very adept at learning to copy her motions, her uh, idiosyncrasies in what she did. Uh, They copied the the jargon that was used, the slang. That's it. All right, 1221.46. That's well within the L-band. 
There are many experiences that Ellie has in the movie prior to detecting a signal, because I've not yet had that experience. But many of the other things that she encounters, things which I myself have encountered, like having a senior male colleague appropriate your results and present them as his own, in this case, the genders are such, or having to fight very hard to be taken seriously for the research that you want to do and having all kinds of different gender blocks in in a path towards a career in in science. The producers of the movie got right the way the search is conducted and what would happen when we actually detected a signal. Uh, They were right on there, and this was a very good thing because up until that time, the general public was totally confused on how SETI worked, Was it really something to do with flying saucers? What was this all about? Well, it's finally made clear in the movie, and it served a very important educational purpose in this through all the years since. And then what they bungled? When it goes beyond their depiction of detection of extraterrestrial radio signals, they get far afield. uh, Their fancy machine that utilizes wormholes, of course, is based entirely on speculation. Dear Professor Drake, this is probably the most important letter I have ever written, and the most important letter you will receive. It is to inform you of a disturbance of paranormal nature involving alien encounters that are visible and audible. Most disturbing are the physical Dear SETI Institute, to the human I would greatly appreciate someone from your organization like to phone me so I may relate my personal story of what I perceive to have been an alien abduction and possible some papers implantation on UFOs on here on this planet because I was surprised to learn that you were searching for life in the universe because according to the papers, the aliens have already found well, us. Well, it's a great problem for us that people often confuse us with claims of UFOs landing on Earth, abductions of people, little green men being spotted. In all of those cases, uh, there's never been supporting evidence. In SETI, we are following well-founded, solid scientific principles. We are searching for evidence which can be confirmed and can be repeated, repeatedly found and can be seen by other observers than ourselves. This is what distinguishes SETI from the popular reports of UFOs and all the rest. So, Seth, when you did observing down at Arecibo, what was an average SETI day of observing like for you? You were down there for a while? Yeah, well, I was. And it was kind of like being at a monastery because you ate at the telescope. You you slept there on the site. You were working all day, 12 hours typically or six hours, whatever it was, whatever your shift was. And you just sit behind these computers in the control room. Behind you was the giant telescope, but that was out the window. And, uh, you know, mostly you're listening to some music and chatting with other guys in the room. That's what it's like. It's actually tedious enough that today we would automate all of that. And I suppose people often ask you and Frank if you've discovered a signal. And the answer is that we have, in fact, detected many signals which looked as though they were truly from outer space. However, none of them has ever been repeated. There are so many ways that a signal from us can imitate a signal from outer space that we can't take any of these signals seriously unless they were repeated and we can show that they come from a certain place in the sky and have other characteristics we would expect from an extrasolar signal. Probably the one that got the most publicity of these unexplained signals was a signal which is known as the wow signal. Why was it called wow? Well, it was because uh, the astronomer came in after a night of observing and he just flipped through all the paper that the computer had printed out and he found a big signal in there. And it so impressed him that he wrote wow next to it. So, you know, this was a signal that had the benefit of a really great name. Wow signal. It was detected at the Ohio State University in 1977. It was seen once. Its behavior was exactly as you would expect if a radio transmitter in outer space had been seen by the telescope there. And that's what it saw, a signal which suggested that the transmitter was fixed with respect to the stars. It has been searched for over and over many times since by many different observers. The same place in the sky has been watched on the same radio frequencies. It has never been seen again. So how do you rule out what is a false signal? Well, if you don't see it again, all you can say is, look, we don't know what it was, but we can't prove that it was ET. So that's, you know, the nature of science. You have to be able to repeat the measurement. You have to be able to repeat the measurement. 
So, Seth, it must be disappointing to work so many years on this project and not pick up a signal. What keeps you going? Well, Molly, what keeps you going is the fact that the experiment keeps getting better. The equipment gets better. Your ideas about what might be out there keep getting better. The number of planets we found keeps going up. There are all sorts of reasons every year to be more enthusiastic than the year before. There are several things going on here. One is that as powerful as our search systems are, we live in a vast and complicated universe. There are hundreds of billions of stars in our own galaxy alone. And to search for radio signals, you must search a multitude of radio channels to find the signal. Within the range of frequencies which carry the farthest with the least effort within our galaxy, there are more than a billion possible radio channels. So to mount a serious search, you must be able to search perhaps billions of radio channels, and you must be able to search tens of millions of stars before you have any reasonable chance of success. Personally, I will be astonished if that happens in my lifetime, because as I estimate the the difficulty of the task and the probabilities of, of a detection, I think it'll happen eventually. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be pursuing this. It might be that we are you know, the first of what might be several generations that we'll have to work at it before we, we detect a signal. Why is that question of whether or not we're alone such an important question to you? Well, I'm fascinated by the intelligent life of Earth. Uh, we're so used to it, we, we don't really have a feeling for really how magnificent we are how complicated our physiology is, how magnificent our brain is, and all the things it can be doing. It can be listening, seeing, thinking all simultaneously. We are marvelous creatures, the product of a long history of evolution. And I'm very curious, first, how often has this happened? What are the creatures of other planets like? Are they even more amazing than we ourselves are? In fact, some of them probably will be. We are from a star that's a middle-aged star. It's not the youngest in the galaxy. It's not the oldest. It's just about in the middle. So there are probably many Earths that are literally billions of years ahead of us. And what are the creatures like there? I think SETI is done by people who are willing to take a long shot and don't really care whether their career pans out or not because it's just so exciting, the concept of receiving a signal combined with the fact that we have on Earth right now the technology fully capable of receiving a signal that would communicate from another civilization. That such a reception would be an event unprecedented in human history. It would be the greatest discovery in humankind. And I think maybe the question that I'd ask myself is, how could I not do SETI? Is it true there's a bottle of champagne sitting somewhere in a refrigerator for the big day? It is true that whenever we are conducting searches somewhere in the facility at which we're searching, it might be at Arecibo, right now it's at Hat Creek, somewhere in a refrigerator there is a bottle of champagne chilling to be used on the great day with capital G, capital D, when the discovery is made. Although people will probably be so busy, the champagne will be the last thing that they think of. I don't think they will get to the champagne for several hours because if you think about what will happen, if you think you've got a signal, everybody is going to cluster around the receiving system and just watch to see what happens with that signal. Does it change? Does it go away? What things might we learn from it? They're going to be totally uninterested to take even two minutes to run to a refrigerator and open a bottle. then SETI has not always been smooth sailing. Remember that this was a NASA-funded project as we entered the early 1990s, and finally in 1992, the real observing began. The receivers were complete, the target lists were made up. I mean, we cut the ribbon and we began listening. And then, just as it was getting underway, a congressman named Richard Bryant stirred up some controversy by saying, you know, government money shouldn't be used to look for aliens. Yeah, it only costs five cents per person per year, but nonetheless... Madam President, the amendment I am offering today will eliminate funding for what I believe to be a foolish and wasteful NASA program, which seems to have developed a life of its own. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, a senator from Nevada saw that he could make political hay. Has attracted ridicule and derision. 
since it was first proposed a number of years ago. He was up for re-election, needed all the publicity he could get. He could make political hay by challenging this project as a waste of the taxpayers' money. The taxpayers shouldn't be searching for little green men, as he put it. And he succeeded in killing all support for this project. In fact, made it very clear that he was going to make trouble if NASA attempted any further efforts to search for extraterrestrial intelligent life. We had a bit of early warning that it might be attempted by uh, Senator Bryan uh, because he had spoken out against SETI in the past. But when we actually watched it unfold on C-SPAN the morning of the debate on the Senate floor, it was, I guess you might say, heartbreaking. It was um, demoralizing. It was like letting all of the wind out of a balloon. So almost a year to the date of turning on what we had hoped would be a 10-year search, we were terminated. And so I went home and I told my husband, please don't leave me alone with any sharp objects. It was a really difficult weekend. By the next morning, we were uh, convening meetings uh, talking about, well, who can we go to to privately fund this? So less than 24 hours later, we were aggressively moving forward. But there was certainly a moment of depression. Coming up, what critics of SETI have to say and the future of the search. You're listening to Are We Alone? With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on Are We Alone? Looking at how SETI researchers try to answer that question. And of course, they strongly feel we're not alone in this vast universe. They back up that intuition with plenty of good scientific arguments, but not all are optimistic that we'll find cosmic company. SETI has its critics. I'm Ben Zuckerman. I'm a professor in the physics and astronomy department at UCOA. Ben Zuckerman believes SETI efforts are in vain because... Earth has been transmitting into space for a few billion years. Earth's uh, presence as an unusual place would have been known to the extraterrestrials for about two billion years, ever since the time our atmosphere went oxygenic. That is, we had a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere because that would have been the time when other creatures would have realized that there was life here on Earth. Okay, so, uh, you know, any time in the last two billion years, if there's an intelligent civilization within, I don't know, a couple hundred, maybe a few thousand light years, they could have trained a telescope on Earth, they could have seen there was uh, these strange gases in the atmosphere of our planet, they know there's life here. But so so what? Um, Maybe they set up their own SETI experiment or listening for us. Well, if hypothetical extraterrestrials had discovered, say, 100 million years ago that there was life on Earth, by studying the strange gases in the atmosphere, and it tried to do a SETI experiment, they would have failed because we were still 100 million years into the future. But they would have known that something interesting was going on here, and they would have had to decide whether or not they were going to come and investigate it because we weren't going to help them out with radio signals since we weren't around to do that. So what you're saying is that Earth has been broadcasting this oxygen signature for whatever, you know, the, the, the evidence of life on this planet for billions of years. They're not going to run a SETI experiment for billions of years. They're going to come here? Well, the alternative to coming here would be just let the Earth pass by um, their world. The time scales for stars passing one another in the, in the solar vicinity is of order millions of years, and so they're going to be our next-door neighbors for a long time. And if they know there's life here and a million years go by and they don't get any any signal, or even if a thousand years go by, they'll have every motivation if they're interested in finding out what life on Earth is like to build a spaceship and come here and investigate directly. And there's no evidence 
that at any time in the past, whether recent or billions of years ago, than any extraterrestrials have ever come here to investigate what's going on. I, I have to ask, Ben, because you did a SETI experiment in the early days, right, back in, I guess, the 1970s with, uh, with Pat Palmer using a telescope in Green Bank, West Virginia, actually. Something must have convinced you in the interim that maybe that wasn't a good use of your time. Well, yeah, that original experiment was motivated in part by discussions that uh, Pat Palmer and I had with uh, Carl Sagan when we were all at Harvard University together. And although I was never a true believer like Carl was, I was at least an agnostic and thought that, you know, maybe there's a chance to be, we could be successful. But but at that time, I was not really aware of this where are they um, idea that if there were lots of them out here, that they would have had some motivation to come here. And since there's no evidence that we've ever been visited by an extraterrestrial civilization, I now think they must be very rare. The most recent ramification of this where are they has to do with the realization that we can build telescopes in space that are able to discover and measure the properties of living worlds. And I think once we find such planets, if we find any, we are going to be enormously motivated to go and uh, explore with spaceships what's going on at those planets. Ben Zuckerman is a physicist and astronomer at UCLA. We've heard that argument for many years, and we have a very simple answer for it, which almost sounds flip. It is that the aliens haven't come to us and visited Earth because radio works so well. Any kind of interstellar space travel is extremely expensive. It's a very slow process. You just can't go fast. There's, there are hazards in space that prevent you from going very fast. So the point that Frank Drake is making is that interstellar travel to, to explore distant star systems is really hard. Just mind-boggling expensive I mean, it takes operation. tons of energy, enormous amounts of energy. If you go very fast, it's very dangerous. I can give you an example just to give you a feel for how difficult it is to go to another planetary system, how much energy is required. Well, we know how much energy is required because it has to be at least the kinetic energy, and physicists' kinetic energy, of a spacecraft going tenth the speed of light. Now, let's imagine our spacecraft is the size of a very small airliner, like a, a 737 aircraft, for example. It turns out the kinetic energy in such an object going a tenth the speed of light is equal to about 200 years of the total electrical power production of the United States. So what we're talking about is a mission such that you would have to shut down the United States totally for 200 years to launch it. You're going to have to wait for 100 years for any results, and they might never come. Does this make any sense? I don't think there's any government or any sensible scientist, even the most enthusiastic, that would say this was a wise thing to do. But on the other hand, communication is easy, and it's also faster. Radio waves or light waves are just so much more efficient. And while critics of SETI point out ways in which the search might fail, others are just doing the experiment and even involving the public. In the case of Dan Wertheimer at the University of California at Berkeley, that means making SETI data available for processing on home computers, the popular screensaver known as SETI at Home. SETI at Home is a search for radio signals from other civilizations. We use the world's largest telescope in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. It's 1,000 feet across. It holds 10 billion bowls of cornflakes. But instead of trying to analyze the data at the telescope, we just record the data, and then we ask volunteers all around the world to help us analyze that data to help us find of potential signals from other civilizations. And the idea is that you install the SETI at home screensaver, and while you're not tapping on your computer's keyboard, it downloads a chunk of SETI data collected at the Arecibo radio telescope, combs through it, and looks for signals. Correcto mundo, Molly. And because millions of people are running SETI at home, there's just an enormous amount of computer power being applied to the search. This is not just an ordinary screensaver program. It doesn't just put up pretty pictures on your screen, but it is actually analyzing the data that you've been assigned, that part of the sky that you've been assigned, to look for a huge variety of signals. And then when it's done analyzing that piece of data that you've been assigned, it may take a few days, it will send the results of that analysis back to us at Berkeley, and any interesting signals that it might have found. And then you get a new piece of data from a different part of the sky, and you just keep doing that until you find ET. Now, can you explain just how it is that the radio signals travel from Puerto Rico to my computer at home? 
So we actually can't get the data from Puerto Rico out on the internet. The, Puerto Rico doesn't have a good internet connection. So the data is shipped from the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico by a big Federal Express box comes to us every month full of disk drives. And then we take those disk drives, we plug them into our computer here in Berkeley. We break that data up into these little chunks of data, these work units, and then we send them out over the internet to individual computers all around the world. So, so actually, if I were to discover ET, it would be from an ET signal from yesterday or last week. That's right. We don't process the data right at the telescope at the moment it's taken. It might take a week, a month, or maybe even a year before you're assigned that data. So you might discover signals a year after the data was taken. But that's okay because it probably took a thousand years or even a million years for the signals to get to the telescope. So the delay of a month or a year is not not a big deal. So the next question is, what would a signal look like and how would it pop up on your on your computer at home? What your computer looks for, it combs all the different frequencies and possible signal types. And you do get to see them on the screen. When it finds an interesting signal, it shows you the most interesting one it's found so far. But what does an interesting one look like? One possible signal is a pulsing signal, bip, 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 bip. We don't know how fast those bips would occur. It might be bip, 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 or it might be bip, 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 or it might be another kind of signal, a chirping signal, or we don't know how fast it might chirp. We don't know the frequency. There are a lot of unknowns, but it shows you this kind of mathematical representation on the screen. But you actually don't have to watch your computer. You can be doing something else because the computer's recording all these interesting signals that it found, and then it sends the interesting signals back to the computer here in Berkeley that keeps a huge database of all the interesting signals. We go through it, look for what's interference, what's interesting, what do we want to go back and look at again, and we use some volunteers to do that too that look at the data. Um, But your name is attached to the signals that you find with your computer. So if you're the lucky one that finds that faint murmur of distant civilization, you'll get the Nobel Prize. There's a catch, though. You you have to share it with me, and you have to share it with a million other people who are participating in SETI at home. The, mil- the Nobel Prize is about a million dollars, so you won't get rich. You might get a dollar or so. So you're trying to think like an alien in some ways. And is the question, how would an alien intelligence send a deliberate message out into the universe, or would it be an accidental marking of their technology and their civilization? The way that we broadcast I Love Lucy, it went out into the universe, not because we wanted other alien beings to watch our comedy shows, it's because it's the leakage that radiates out into space. Yeah, I think you pointed out two distinct classes of signals, the, these leakage, these artifacts of another civilization. We don't know whether the first signal that Earthlings will encounter will be kind of an accidental signal that leaves a civilization that wasn't intended for interstellar communication, but we can detect them, we know about them. But another kind of signal would be a deliberate thing. They send us a laser signal or a radio signal or something that is deliberately aimed toward us because they're interested in civilizations like ours, emerging civilizations, and they want to start communication. Or maybe they point it to the nearest million stars. They want to just find out if anybody's out there. And I think it's really hard to say what we're going to find first. Are we going to find deliberate signals pointed at us because they want to communicate with us, or are we going to find just an artifact of their civilization? So we look for both kinds of signals. Dan Wertheimer is at the University of California, Berkeley, and is the chief scientist for SETI at Home. In recent years, it's been recognized that it makes sense to search for optical signals instead of just radio signals. And there are already a few projects in the world. Uh, The leading one right now is one operated by Paul Horowitz at Harvard University. If I had to place my bets, I'd still place it on radio. But the fact is that intense lasers can do a damn good job, too, as long as what you're trying to do is aim your signal at a particular target where you can take advantage of the very narrow beams you can make with an optical searchlight. So optical SETI is the idea that you look for very strong light signals from space? Yep, exactly. Flashing lights that might be produced by alien lasers. We have demonstrated, and by we I mean humans, the ability to create extremely brilliant sources of light, which in fact can be detected across vast distances in the universe. And these sources are giant lasers. They weren't made for signaling. They were made to produce very high temperatures in nuclear fusion test reactors. And they are incredibly powerful. The most powerful one, which is at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, 
uh, radiates a pulse of light which has a power of 1,000 million million watts. It would be about 10,000 times brighter during that flash than the light from our own star. So in without, other words, yeah, it would outshine the sun. Yeah, we can make we can make a heck of a bright flash if we want to, and and of course we shouldn't consider ourselves an example of an of an advanced civilization in this business. We're just getting started. So this is simply a calibration or an existence proof that this thing is not completely harebrained and that it certainly is plausible to look for that kinds of signal. But remember, we've had lasers for only 50 years. Other older civilizations might be flashing Earth on a routine basis. So Paul Horowitz's automated scan of the sky, hunting for sudden flashes of light, might be the way to find ET. It's certainly an idea that deserves more effort. And that's just part of the story of modern SETI. Another can be found 250 miles north of San Francisco in Hat Creek, California, at the Allen Telescope Array. I'm actually standing out here on the observatory grounds. I'm surrounded by these uh, metal mushrooms. Kind of a cold Now, why were you there, Seth? Well, I was there for the dedication in October 2007. Much of the development cost of the array was funded by Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft, who wants to place a bet on finding extraterrestrial life. I, I like to call SETI the longest of long shots, but if this array picked up a signal, an off-planet signal, that would be such a, an amazing thing and something that would be a, a civilization-changing event. So when I was there, Paul Allen punches a small silver button and more than three dozen antennas of the Allen array begin to sweep the sky. Kind of an impressive sight just to see these 42 antennas all poised to... Uh, intercept cosmic static. It's a major new instrument based on a radically new design. Lots of small telescopes instead of a few big antennas. Now, why are these smaller antennas better than one big one? Well, they're not necessarily, but they're a lot less expensive. And it also turns out that with small antennas, you have a what's called a wider field of view. You can see more of the sky at once. So, you know, you might be able to investigate more than, you know, just a couple of stars at, at, at one time. And that would speed up the search. And as for the future of SETI, Frank Drake continues to be optimistic. The radio SETI programs have all benefited from what is known as Moore's Law, which tells us the power computing systems double every 18 months. And this has made ways for us to build much more powerful detection systems at affordable costs. So I believe that as long as there is public interest in supporting this project, we will see SETI continuously growing in power, the searches continuously growing in their capability over the years. That is the future of SETI. So SETI continues to move toward the future, and I remain optimistic that we'll find something, Molly, because after all, every year the experiment's getting significantly faster. And this has been a scientific endeavor for 50 years, sure, but it's been a human question since mankind first looked at the sky. I think it's reasonable to assume that if there is some intelligent life out there, then they're probably looking up at their sky and wondering, is there any intelligence out beyond their own planet? Carl Sagan said it very well. Either we are alone or we aren't. Either answer is very important. We'd like to thank Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhall for their help in producing this program, also the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, which joins other researchers around the world in trying to understand life on this planet and in using the tools of astronomy to answer the question, are we alone? Within this galaxy are stars and worlds and, it may be, an enormous diversity of living things and intelligent beings and spacefaring civilizations. I've been doing SETI for 30 years now. At this point, I'm hooked. I could not put SETI aside now because it's just the most important thing I think that I'm able to do. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.